Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And this is Fred Lucas, White House reporter for The Daily Signal. And we're here to talk about uh, a very important topic that's been a bit in the news lately. Fred's going to actually set this up for us. He's going to set the scene for this week's topic. Fred, I'll, I'll let you take it from here. Well, I uh, just want to talk about a time when the public at large was very frustrated with an out-of-touch ruling class in Washington. Uh, they longed for something different, a candidate for president that people hadn't really seen a lot of, and the press and most of the political class mostly dismissed. Uh, but when this candidate came along, he had celebrity value. He uh, was willing to use pretty colorful language to describe the political class, and then he ran and nearly won. He actually got a won the popular vote in the election of 1824. Uh, ended up losing to the uh, political class's main candidate. That was uh, John Quincy Adams. But Andrew Jackson came roaring back to win a landslide in 1828 as probably the first anti-establishment politician of in American history. Well, thanks for setting that up for us, Fred. Obviously, there are some. Uh, c- deep connections between Andrew Jackson's election in 1828 and the 2016 election that brought Donald Trump to the office. They had similar campaign themes such as draining the swamp in Washington, D.C. They both had anti-establishment kind of messages that D.C. was was broken and that they were going to come on with the voice of the people to come fix it. So I, I think there's been a lot of connections that not just historians have noted, but the, the candidate himself and now President Donald Trump has drawn these connections to Andrew Jackson, the candidate from the early 19th century, who, frankly, a, a lot of Americans haven't paid a lot of attention to in recent years. He's kind of disappeared. I think that he's kind of in that that kind of between period between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. And he, he kind of decreased in in his prominence in American society. But he's definitely back. And, of course, we see that Trump has a big portrait of Andrew Jackson in the Oval Office. Gave the big speech at the Hermitage. That's right. He had this big speech that he delivered at the Hermitage um, this year. And he's definitely courted this this kind of uh, comparison between this president. So, you know, I think we'd like to talk about, you know, his legacy, what he stood for, because I think a lot of people don't really know a whole lot about Jackson. They don't know a lot about his his legacy. They don't know what he stood for. I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there. Can you kind of set up the, I mean, the, of course, there was the 1824 and 1828 elections, but the kind of some of the forces in play that brought him to the White House and, of course, the very chaotic was, elections that ensued. Yeah, I mean, uh, but going back to 1824, which which I wrote about in my book, uh, Tainted by Suspicion, one of the, those elections I wrote about, uh, and, and this was an election when uh, it was still a young nation, relatively young, but uh, the uh, there had been a certain level of corruption. Uh, Andrew Jackson actually called Washington the great whore of Babylon. <laughs> was was his, uh, one, one of the things he called it. And it, 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 that shocked some people. That shocked people in the political class. I think a lot of people would still agree with that today. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, Hen- Henry Clay was uh, was one of the people who thought that, you know, just killing a few thousand, couple thousand British uh, shouldn't qualify him for the highest office in the land. Uh, of course, and, you're referencing the, right. the Battle of New Orleans, the War of 1812. Right. We're going to talk a little bit more about later in the show 
um, which, you know, an event that launched him to national celebrity. I think that something I, I, I think that strikes me about Jackson is that he's the first kind of outsider president, as you said. He wasn't he wasn't really from the original 13 colonies. While he was born in South Carolina, he had moved out west to Tennessee. And he was very much associated with this kind of rising people in the West in America. These, these, they were not a member of the uh, elite aristocracy. Jackson grew up poor. He was an orphan. He was orphaned during the Revolutionary War. He kind of seemed like, well, I guess you could say one of the people. I mean, most founders, you think of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they're kind of members of the and, aristocracy. And Jackson's a little different. That's very important, too, because uh, when Jackson, uh, in, in 1824, popular voting actually became mostly mainstream at, at that time. Uh, in previous elections, it wasn't commonplace. I mean, we've talked a lot about the Electoral College over the last few months. Uh, it, it, at one point, it was the state legislatures uh, decided on electors. Uh in the 1820s, that's when we started seeing popular voting getting more and more common among states, and that's something that Andrew Jackson took advantage of. And and he is probably also uh, not just first, I guess, populist, but uh, just broadly the first candidate to, I think, get elected on pure force of personality with the public. Right. I mean, I think you could say it's it's the rise of the, the common man in American electoral politics. I mean, every I mean, other presidents after Jackson always touted the fact they were born in a log cabin, that they came from humble <laughs> origins, that they were just one. Even if that wasn't true, there were a lot of other candidates like William Harry, Henry Harrison, who was a Whig candidate later on, who always touted that he came from a log cabin. Of course, it's the log cabin and hard cider campaign, even though he, he kind of lived in a, a rather wealthy home in Ohio. Uh, this became really a, a common theme in American history that presidents tout their humble origins rather than their more aristocratic origins and that there was a, a deeper connection uh, with the American people, even if to a certain extent that wasn't true. I mean, even Jackson himself, by the time he was elected, he was, was rich. <laughs> he was rich. He was a, a wealthy plantation owner uh, in Tennessee. He certainly wasn't poor. Um, so, you know, Jackson, uh, you know, I think one of the things people don't understand is what was what was Jackson about? What were his his ideas? What were the things that launched him uh, to the Oval Office? I think is something that I think a lot of people don't understand. And, you know, I've spoken a little bit about in some of the writings that I've done about how he believed very much in limited government and kind of I mean, those days it would say states rights and things like that. So. There are a lot of these battles that were taking place in his day. And, I, and Jackson, you know, some people have called Jackson a populist demagogue, uh, of course. Uh, but others would say, well, you know, he stood on some ideas that maybe even some conservatives believe in today, like limited government and and things like that. Of course, there was a, a big debate in that day over these issues, much like we have in our own. Well, limited government, states' rights, but he also did believe in the union. There, there was, of course, the... The famous uh, toast between he and uh, John C. Calhoun, in which John C. Calhoun, you know, wanted uh, supported nullification, and uh, Jackson uh, made a toast to the Union uh, to to keep it together. So. Right. There's there's this actually statue that's now in New Orleans that beneath this ja Andrew Jackson statue in Jackson Square, it says, uh, "Our Federal Union, it must be preserved," right, which was right, which was dramatic because Jackson was known as a guy who liked more of the state's rights opinion. So he believed that most policy should be state set at the state and local level. But at the same time, he believed strongly that the union was sacrosanct, that it couldn't be broken up. And so you could say he really was a kind of 
a nationalist in some regard. He believed in limited government, but ultimately he believed in the, the destiny of the United States as a united country, which was not a settled position at this time in history. It was definitely something that a lot of Americans, this country is a very young nation. This was the generation just after the founding that had to kind of make it work. You know, there was a lot of contention over whether this nation is really a, a collection of states or it really is one country. And uh, I think also uh, Jackson, um, beyond just the, the man uh, and the president, uh, the Jacksonian movement sort of defined modern presidential elections, modern politics. Right. Uh, what grew out of that was Martin Van Buren, who was the clever political behind-the-scenes operative at the time, later became president, of course. But uh, during, during Jackson's, he, he wasn't with Jackson in the first campaign in 1824. He moved over to Jackson, saw that was where, uh, you know, where the political winds were shifting, uh, ran his 1828 campaign, was his top political advisor, and uh, put together a real political machine for him. Uh, put together a, a you know, string of newspapers. He had the Jacksonian press. And you had what became the Democratic Party uh, under Martin Van Buren and Andrew Jackson. It, it was really an interesting marriage of Jackson, who was the soldier and who had this great personality, with some of the ideas men of Martin Van Buren. A lot of these kind of, I guess you could say, intellectuals who brought old style Jeffersonian politics of Thomas Jefferson. They brought this to the White House and they kind of married Jackson's popular appeal with some deeper principles that led to, I mean, very strong policies at the end of the day. I mean, the, the Jacksonians at the end of the day had a platform. I mean, obviously those days party platforms weren't as common, but they certainly ended up at some very strong positions, including one on the National Bank, which right. became a big issue. A lot of people know something about the Jacksonian era. They know a little bit about the National Bank, which they decentralized and uh, and and pulled the charter from. So, you know, there certainly were a lot of policy issues that went beyond mere personality. Um, but of course, you can't talk about Andrew Jackson and what he stood for without understanding his personality and his celebrity and why Americans uh, gravitated toward this man who was once called the the you know uh, one of the quintessential men of the Fourth of July generations. He was a quintessential American who grew up during the Revolution, and so I think there's a lot about Jackson, the man, the personality that appealed to Americans at the time. And I was very fortunate recently to interview Brian Kilmeade, who's the uh, co-host of Fox and Friends, about a new book uh, called Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans uh, that explains this this great moment in history that created Jackson the celebrity. I mean, if, if Donald Trump has right. The Apprentice, which, you know, you and I talked right. about before the show is, you know, this kind of thing that's, that launched him to a certain extent in his political career. Well, Jackson had this battle of New Orleans that, you know, excited Americans and made him not just a local hero, but a nationally famous one. And we're actually going to uh, play a clip from my recent interview with Kilmeade. Uh, we're going to go to that right now and explain this, this great moment in American history. So we're here on the right side of history with Brian Kilmeade, who is the co-host of Fox and Friends and the author of a new book called Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans, The Battle That Shaped America's Destiny. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the program, Brian. I appreciate you having me on. And so we're talking about a, a figure who has become more prominent, I think, in America right now, one who maybe have, have gone to the sidelines in recent history. But since the election of 
President Donald Trump and the comparisons between Andrew Jackson and, and Donald Trump, I think there's been a lot more interest in Jackson, uh, who he was, what his history was, what his character was like. And so Brian really talks about in his book the, the seminal moment in Jackson's career, the, 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 the single moment that defined him as a leader and launched him to the presidency. And Brian, if, if you can just get right into it, I think this, this era, this time period, this War of 1812, which, of course, the Battle of New Orleans took place in, is not really well known in American history. There's kind of this gray area between the American Revolution and the Civil War. Can you kind of explain for the audience what this war was about, why the United States was in it, and why it was such an important event in our history. Well, it's our second war of freedom, and it's the first one without the French. The No one really thought that the the first revolution for the British, they figured that was a fluke. There's no way we can pull that off again. And they were just rattling our cage, ignoring the Treaty of Paris, uh, making their presence felt in the Midwest, rallying uh, Native Americans against the settlers, stopping us in some way, shape, or form, or tripping us up or slowing us down as we tried to move out west. They also did this thing called impressment, where they decided they needed more people in the Navy to fight Napoleon, so they would take hours. They would go up to merchant ships and sailing ships, and they just say, okay, uh, you have some British descent. We think you defected. You're with us. And they take thousands. And then America felt as though they were being put on notice. So before that, they would be being noticed for, then they have to stand up for themselves. And, and the rest of the world was watching, and they did. By with 79 votes in the House and 19 votes in the Senate, they end up going to war. The problem is the New England states don't want to get into this war, so they barely fight. The British pick that up and barely fight them. So they focus on the South and the East, and they just terrorize the East Coast. And, you know, this is something that I think a lot of people don't know is that most of this war went quite badly for American arms. There was a few successful ship-on-ship engagements, but a large part, a lot of American armies had taken a beating to the British at this time. This this war had gone very poorly for a lot of American arms. There have been a number of setbacks. Washington, D.C. itself was burned to the ground during this engagement. So a lot of this was going very poorly. Jackson kind of steps in uh, almost at the last minute of this war to, well, change the narrative of what had happened in the War of 1812 from something that was seen as a series of defeats into something very different. Can you kind of explain uh, what Jackson's role was in this and and you know, how this kind of turned around the narrative with this war that had happened. Well, Andrew Jackson wanted to fight right away. He wants revenge on the British, who basically wiped out his entire family. And he wants to fight for America. And they say, great, you just wait there. We'll call you if we need you. And with the bad colonels, terrible generals, and washed-up generals from the Revolutionary War, they're having almost no success. Soon they, tie, they, they turn to Jackson and his militia, and they had great success. And then what Jackson realizes, too, also, almost all on instinct, is the big battle is going to be New Orleans. So he had to get that band together, keep them together, win in Mobile, win in Pensacola, win the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, and go over for the ultimate match, and that would be against the British in New Orleans. But outside of New Orleans, the goal was to keep them out. And to keep them out, he actually decided to dig a canal, the Rodriguez Canal, and build a berm, a mini wall. And they'd have cannon fire and, 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 and guns going through that wall. And what they do is would have some original protection. The British could not figure out a way forward. How do you know? Because they wiped him out in about a half hour. Explain, I think, something that's very interesting to me about this battle is explain the forces that Jackson had under his command. These were not just regular Marines. These were not just regular troops. This was really a polyglot force 
of differing people that made up what America was at the time. Can you explain yeah. the people who fought for Jackson in, in this battle? Yeah, the Choctaw Indians, uh, friendly Indians to our cause, uh, friendly to Americans. You had people of color, people of tea, as, as Jackson described them, all treated equally along with pirates, regular militia, Marines. And together they would number just over 3,000. And the crazy thing was uh, they were taking on a force that was much more experienced, well-honed, fought for years together, and doubled the size uh, in strength. And armaments. But somehow Jackson ended up devising the perfect plan to win. And he did it because it was all hands on deck, all hands to fight, uh, all hands to dig the canal, all hands to build a wall. And then, of course, you had to execute. And he did. Jackson was great under pressure. Yeah, that's what's really incredible to me is the, the general opposite of him was General Pakenham, who was the Duke of Wellington's son-in-law. These were the guys who had won in Spain against Napoleon's forces in Spain. These were these were crack troops. These were experienced veterans that Jackson defeated at these battles. These were not just like a simple militia unit at the edge of the world. These were veterans that they had defeated quite stunningly, as one newspaper account said that it was almost a miracle in this battle. Uh, can you explain what the effect of this battle had on the country at large? When, the United, when, when Jackson won the Battle of New Orleans, how did the average American see this? How, did this? how did this influence their view of the war and America's role in the world, really? Treaty against signed, uh, no one knows it, uh, said by Britain, it looked like we were signing from a position of weakness, and we did. We didn't even address the impressment of the sailors in the final treaty, but the British didn't want to fight anymore, and we were done, but we thought the big stand was going to be New Orleans, and it was. In fact, uh, New Orleans fight took place, but yet around Christmas, Treaty of Ghent was signed. So a lot of people thought, well, you know, did you have to fight that fight? It was right. really necessary, aside from who won. And Jackson always held to the thought, and I do too, that if they had won, the British had won New Orleans, they were never giving it up. They were going to flip it and keep it or try to extract a huge reward for having it. And Jackson knew that, and that's what the desperation that he fought with, he designed a battle plan with, that he enforced his people with. So he told them what was at stake, and between that, his leadership— and the fear that they had for them, they fought, they fought hard, they fought relentlessly. But this was an early knockout. This was Frazier uh, Foreman. With Foreman coming in and knocking him down six times in two rounds, they knocked him out good within an hour. I, I really love how you, in, in this book in particular, defend this idea. I know I've heard this from a lot of places. Well, this battle didn't matter because, well, the treaty had already been signed. But what you're describing is that this was not a done deal. The British might have just hung on to New Orleans like the Rock of Gibraltar in Spain. They might have just hung on to this. And really, the development of America may have never taken place. We may have never gone past the Mississippi. The sea, the signing sea that we're used to may never have came into being if it wasn't for Jackson's stand here. Um, yeah. So I, one thing I think that, uh, you know, what can Americans today take from Jackson? I think to me, it's what are the essential qualities that made this man a leader? Why did people at the time look up to Jeff? Why did he become this national uh, celebrity? I, there's this great quote from James Parton, who I know you you use heavily, you cite heavily in your book. Um, he has this great quote. It's been a little bit misinterpreted sometimes. It says, desperate courage is a majority. A and talk about Jackson's courage and his leadership right. and how he inspired other Americans, not just to be brave himself, but to make others Yeah, brave. fear and revere. And if you want to know what it is, here's a quote from Jackson. When asked, did you really have to fight that battle? He said, if General Pakenham and his 10,000 matchless veterans could have annihilated my little army, he would have captured New Orleans and sentried all the contiguous territory. Though technically the war was over, Great Britain would have immediately abrogated the Treaty of Ghent and would have ignored Jefferson's transaction with Napoleon. 
So that's Andrew Jackson. He says, that was at stake. I think I understand people and motivation. He believed he had to win that battle. I thoroughly believe he had to win the battle. Absolutely. Just judging by the characteristics of the British military today, not so much today, but back then, they were looking to conquer and wear you out. And Jackson, of course, you know, launched this thing into a national's career. He became president of the United States. He became this this natural national celebrity. Um, do you think this really de- defined his life, this battle? Do you think this is really... The, the critical moment in his life, and maybe the critical moment in the life of a young nation, which is the United States. Well, he was already successful in business, and he's in his 40s, and he wanted to fight. He wanted to take out the British. He always did, and this was going to be his opportunity. But the British were having so much success, they wouldn't hear of it. So Jackson ended up being the one-man army, and he would get people who were willing to fight and train them to fight. And that's just it. That's where his greatest asset is. He was a people person who inspired, a so-called players coach. What do you say to the people? Jackson has become a somewhat controversial for for a number of reasons. What do you say to people who say that, well, Jackson, we really shouldn't study him anymore. He's a man of another time. There's some things that we don't like about his record. What do you say to the people that say, you know, Jackson should be maybe one of these forgotten members of history that we're we're not, we don't take pride in? What do you say? Well, to no, those- they, they have to, you can't forget him. You know, so, I mean, you can't forget him. You might not think he's a near great or great president. You might not like the fact he balanced the budget. You may hate the Trail of Tears. You may hate the fact that he took out uh, one of the national banks. You know, you may you may hate the fact that he uh, depended on his family more than cabinet members or people at Washington. That's all true. But he was there to make a difference. He, Of course, he belongs on statues and pedestals because he does something extremely unique. He had a complete life where most people, if they're orphaned at 13, would have built-in excuse to be uh, cur- to, to lack courage and character. He had both. He had people in the neighborhood that liked him, that, that worked with him. He had family that brought him in, would be until he came too much to handle. And in the end, he learned about responsibility, especially when it came to money. Absolutely. I think one historian called him the quintessential man of the Fourth of July generation. He was the most American of Americans. And I, I really love this quote. It's from another historian that said, you know, we talk about Jackson's fault and who he was in the history of our country. The historian said he was the man who had his way. He was the American whose simple virtues his countrymen most clearly understood, whose trespasses they most readily forgave. Intelligent Americans are altogether changed. Many, like the Democrats in the 20s and 30s, will still vote for Jackson, for the poor boy who fought his way step by step to the highest station, for the soldier who always went to meet the enemy at the gate, for the president who never shirked a responsibility. Brian, do you think that Americans today should still honor and respect this man? Do you think they can still gain a lot from his life? Absolutely. They're going to try to take him off the 20. I don't think it'll work. You know, he shows that you can make this country no matter what. It shows it's not where you start, it's where you finish that matter, that the country can still be a land of opportunity even when they didn't have paved roads and certainly didn't have cars or planes or Facebook. He got the word out about himself, and he made people know that he was standing up for America. He had great pride in it. People would feed off it. He was a celebrity as well as a decisive leader. He may not like all his decisions, but he got a lot done, and he bypassed Congress a lot. Absolutely. Well, Brian, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on The Right Side of History. Really appreciate your insight. And I really encourage all listeners to pick up this book. Again, it's called Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans, The Battle That Shaped America's Destiny. Uh, And it's out right now on Amazon. And I I highly encourage you to read about this this great American who was once revered by most people in this country. Thank you so much uh, for for coming on the show, Brian. Uh, Thank you so much, Jared. Appreciate it. And there you go. That is the reason why so many Americans at the time revered Andrew Jackson and were willing to put uh, this man in the White House and why the era itself between the Revolutionary War 
and the Civil War was named the Age of Jackson and this man who defined, redefined the presidency. Fred, do you have any final takeaways here about Jackson and his legacy and kind of what it what it means now? Well, I, th- I think uh, just clearly Andrew Jackson was a was an unconventional uh, uh, military leader who became an unconventional political leader, uh, left a lasting legacy. Today we've got an uh, unconventional business leader uh, who became an unconventional political leader, and uh, verdicts is still out on what his legacy will be. But uh, yeah, that's just kind of a wait and see. For sure. I mean, there, there's definitely uh, the intellectual class opposed Jackson when he came to office. They, they certainly opposed Donald Trump. And, you know, I guess, you, as you said, time will tell whether Trump can harness some of the same energy that Andrew Jackson did, which made him popular not just before he became president, not just during his presidency, but certainly after as well, where Americans of future generations had to always contend with the legacy of Jackson. Well, thank you very much, Fred, for, for appearing on the show with me. And thanks to the audience for listening in to The Right Side of History. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, please check out our show on SoundCloud at DailySignal.com. Also take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page for when we air our next program. If you are further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at Jared Stepman, and Fred's Twitter handle, at FredLucasWH. Thank you so much for joining us on The Right Side of History.